Good? Okay. All right, so let's get going. Uh, as a reminder, we have these microphones that are on the first two rows. Those are what we will pass around if you have a question or comment to make. At any point, you can raise your hand. And if I can take a question, then we'll, we'll take it. Make sure you wait to speak until you have the microphone in front of your mouth. And there's a little button at the bottom of it. That's, it's small, but you'll find it. Make sure that's turned on. Um, unless we're just doing it where we have them all on all the time, then you mute it back there. Okay. So if you, if you have one next to you, turn it on. Okay. Just, we can just set that anywhere. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, thank you for that. If you have, if, if it's just like a you know, short comment, you can say in a few words. No need for the microphone for that because I can just repeat it. But if it's an extended question or comment, then make sure you have the microphone so that everyone can hear you in here, but then also for the recording that we put on YouTube later. Okay, so that being said, we'll get into it. Today we're going over the, so there's an elementary principle in Hebrews 6 called faith toward God. We're going to be talking about the difference between living in or under faith versus living under the law of Moses. And we're going to start with why Christ had to be under the law and then kind of go from there. Last week we went over a principle called the resurrection of the dead that has to do with how spiritually you're born again, you have a new identity in Christ. You're resurrected spiritually in that sense. The Bible says that Jesus was physically resurrected in part so that you could also one day be physically resurrected. So that's called the hope of the resurrection. We went over that last week. That is public on YouTube now, so if you guys would like to go back and listen to that, you can. Otherwise, we're going to be getting into what I just introduced this morning. So, step one, I will have you guys turn to Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to start reading in verse 11. I'm just going to make a quick comment first, and then we will start reading. Or verse 10, excuse me, Galatians 3, verse 10. So I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Law of Moses. What most people are familiar with within the Law of Moses is the Ten Commandments. The stone tablets that have the Ten Commandments on them. In addition to that, there's also 613 laws within the law of Moses. Genesis through Deuteronomy is considered the law. Everything after that in the Old Testament is considered the prophets. And in God's law, we are required to obey it in order to be justified. This is in the Old Testament. So under the Old Covenant, which is before Christ came, as a member of God's people, we were required to obey the law in order to be justified, which means in order to be named righteous. So if you look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith. But the man who does them shall live by them. So God's law establishes that all of us are cursed if we're under the law because we failed to keep God's law. <laughs> all of us did. 
Uh, Jesus raised the bar and said, if you look with lust, you're guilty of adultery. If you hate or harbor bitterness, you're guilty of murder. Uh, If you use the Lord's name in vain, that's blasphemy. That was punishable by death under the Old Testament. The very fact that we at any point did not believe on the name of the Lord Jesus, the Bible says, means that we were convicted of sin. So all of us are guilty. And it states clearly that you're cursed if you do not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So all of us under the old covenant had failed and were cursed. And the curse itself is its punishment specifically. Romans 5.18 says is condemnation. So let's turn to Romans 5.18 real quick. Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men. That's talking about Adam's sin. Resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. That means through what Jesus did, we're justified. But it begins by saying, the curse resulted in us being condemned. And if you look at another example... We don't have to, you guys don't have to turn here, but Romans 6, 23, it's a very common verse that says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death and condemnation. That was the punishment that we deserved, and that was what all of us were under before we came to Christ. But Jesus, in his life, the Bible says, obeyed the law perfectly in order to earn righteousness for us. So if you look at in same chapter, Romans 5, and just look at the next verse, it says, For by one man's disobedience, that is Adam, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. It was Christ's obedience to the law that earned him a righteousness that he then gives to us. It's applied to your account is another way of stating that. So one other scripture that is important to look at is Romans 3, verses 21 through 22. So let's look at that. Romans 3, 21 through 22. says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Meaning that a person's made righteous without being under the law of Moses. It says, Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So the righteousness of God is given to those who believe in Jesus and placed on those who believe in Jesus. And the reason why that's possible, just like we read in the previous verse, is because Jesus obeyed the law completely for us and earned that righteousness. Now, something that's Specific to note, I won't turn to these references, but Jesus, from the first day that he was born, it says that they waited until he was eight days old, and then they circumcised him, which was a requirement under the law of Moses. Jesus' entire life, he lived fully submitted to the law, was perfectly obedient. The Bible says he never sinned, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He dressed the specific way you had to dress, had his hair cut the specific way it had to be cut, 
He never had to make an animal sacrifice for himself because he had no sin. So that made it a little bit easier on him. But he did have to give his life as a sacrifice for us. That makes him ultimately the Lamb of God. Another thing that we know is that Jesus took our death penalty so that we would not have to suffer it. So if you go back to Galatians 3 and verse 13, turn back there. Galatians 3 and verse 13. Going over some basics here, but really important. Galatians 3 verse 13 says, Christ has, re- has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, what was the curse? We just read it a few verses earlier. Who can blurt out what the curse was? Death and condemnation. Yep, that's the curse. So he became a curse for us. As it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Their faith is mentioned again. So if I'm to summarize this. We broke God's law, therefore we deserved an eternal death penalty. Jesus stepped in as though we were the ones in prison. He paid our bail. He took that death in condemnation so that we could go free. The way that he did that was by making sure that he kept the law perfectly so that he had no sin of his own. And that made him qualified to take your death penalty instead. So when he rose again from the dead, he rose free from sin so that by us believing in him we're freed from sin and his righteousness that he earned is applied to your account makes you righteous in the sight of God that's faith in Christ in a nutshell right there that's what we receive now it's important to remember though this is what we'll get into next that there's a more details about the specific reason why Jesus had to live under the law I give you guys a summary of it But there are specific parts of the law of Moses that the Bible or the New Testament specifically states as being performed by Jesus so that we would no longer have to be under them. So, for example, circumcision. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Jesus, though, was circumcised the eighth day. Like I said, he had to fulfill that part of the law. There's also the ritual and ceremonial laws, which have to do with how you have to dress, how you have to eat, how you make burnt offerings and animal sacrifices. And so there's a specific verse that addresses that. So if you go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, is where we will start. Colossians 2. Verse 16. If you want more context for this, you guys can go on your own time and and read the whole chapter. But verse 16 starts by saying, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. This is Paul summarizing the ritual, ceremonial, and, and festival requirements under the law of Moses. You had to keep these feast days, keep these holidays, not eat this eat that, don't drink this, don't drink that, this is how you dress, this is what you wear. All that was under the law of Moses. He said, let nobody judge you in those things, verse 17, because they're a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. He's saying that that part of the law, what you eat and drink, what you wear, those animal sacrifices and burnt offerings, all of those things 
were meant to be a shadow of something that was to come in the future. They were not the fulfillment of what God wanted. They were an introduction or a mystery hidden. But Jesus fulfills them. He is the substance. He's the heart of what all those things mean. So then if you go to same chapter, go to verse 20. And we'll read through verses 22. It says, therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? These regulations that, which come from the law do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things, I'll read verse 23 as well, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. That last part is simply saying if you observe regulations of what you shouldn't touch, taste, or handle, it says it's an appearance of wisdom, self-imposed religion, and false humility, it's neglecting the body in certain things, but it says it really accomplishes nothing when it comes to actually overcoming the flesh. In Christ, observing that part of the law does nothing for you. And that's what he's trying to say in that verse. So that's the ceremonial and ritual laws. Another reference that we're going to turn to real quick is Hebrews 13 and verse 9. Hebrews 13 in verse 9. Hebrews 13 verse 9 says, Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. So, trying to observe the law in the area of what you should and shouldn't eat, the Bible says, does not profit you. And there's a specific verse in uh, Timothy that actually says you're to receive every creature of God with thanksgiving. All of it is good. So you can eat pork and seafood. Amen. <laughs> okay. But again, remember, this is all stating that Jesus did observe all these things to fulfill the law. So Matthew 5 in verse 17, Christ said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, to bring it to completion, to perform everything that it required. That's what Jesus did. So Jesus kept these feast days. He kept these observances, made sure he walked in line with the law perfectly to earn righteousness. For who? For us, right. So we've got circumcision, that's done away with. Ritual and ceremonial laws, that's done away with. We've got the burnt offerings and sacrifices. We're going to read a couple verses that just gets into that a little bit more detail. So go to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 14 through 15. If you guys are taking notes, it'd be good to write down these references just for your own study later. Hebrews 9, verses 14 through 15. It says, How much more shall the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So the blood of Christ, his sacrifice, was the offering made to God to cleanse our conscience. That is something animal sacrifices could never do. The Bible says animal sacrifices could never take away sin. They could cover sin, 
They could cover it up and give you temporary forgiveness, but it never purged sin from your inner man. That's what the blood of Christ is for. Amen? That's what we have in Christ. Okay, so then go to verses 24 through 28 of the same chapter. Hebrews 9. It says, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but he went into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. As it has been appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Amen. He made one sacrifice for all time. One more verse. This is also in Hebrews. Go to chapter 10. Next chapter in verse 11 is where we'll start. Hebrews 10 verse 11. We'll read through 18. It says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, this is Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You've been perfected forever. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Because Christ made one sacrifice that is applicable and powerful forever, there is no longer an additional sacrifice that could ever be made. So anything you do to try to make amends for your sin is completely invalid. It accomplishes nothing for you. No animal sacrifice. There's no special prayer you can pray that makes you any more forgiven. One sacrifice, he perfected you forever. Okay, so in summary then, to just wrap that up. Jesus was circumcised to fulfill the law of circumcision so that you don't have to. He observed eating and drinking days and feasts and festivals and years to fulfill that part of the law so that you don't have to. And he also made a sacrifice of his own body to take away sin forever so that you would not have, have to actually burn on the altar, which in our case, without Christ would be hell. That's why animals had to be burned. It was the fire of condemnation. And Jesus took that. The Bible says he descended into hell for us, so we wouldn't have to. Okay, so before I move on to the next part here, what all this means, and this one place that this is stated is in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, which you can write down if you're taking notes, but we won't turn there. It says, you are no longer under the law, but under grace. The law that it's referring to is the law of Moses. You are not under the law, but under grace, but the question that comes up then is, what about the Ten Commandments? Do we still need to observe those? 
Another way of identifying being under grace, the Bible says, is being under what's called the law of Christ. So Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 says that we are to fulfill the law of Christ. And there's another place. It's mentioned twice in James. James 1.25 and James 2.12 both say that we are under something called the law of liberty or the perfect law of liberty. So it actually writes in James 1.25 referring to the New Testament as the law of liberty. And in 2.12 it says we'll be judged by the law of liberty. So even though you're not under the law of Moses, we are under what's called the law of Christ and the law of liberty. And in the law of Christ, Romans 13 says the Ten Commandments are still relevant. They're still valid. So if you go to Romans chapter 13, which is where we'll go next. Romans 13, and we will start reading in verse 8. Romans 13, verse 8. says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. This is a verse that states you are not in bondage to anything or anyone except you do actually owe it to each other in Christ to love one another. And then he writes out what love means. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Another verse, it's good to write down this reference. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23 says that love is to keep Christ's commandments. And it says, and this is his commandment, that we believe on the name of Jesus Christ and love one another. And what's, what is love, according to what we just read? It's the fulfillment of the law, yes. And at the very end it says, love does no harm to a neighbor. The Ten Commandments are an expression of how a person should, person should live to ensure that they are always loving each other. If you love people, you will naturally observe the heart of the Ten Commandments. So love is the fulfillment of the law, and in Christ, we are commanded. What's the first thing? Believe. And the second? Love one another. So, to finish, wrap that part up then, us no longer being under the law of Moses does not mean the Ten Commandments are no longer relevant. They still are, but in different terms. It's simplified and boiled down to simply love one another. And if you do love one another, the Ten Commandments are still relevant. Amen? Okay. So, and this is called the law of Christ. If you want to know more about what it means to love people, just read 1 Corinthians 13. That's a chapter that's many referred to as a love chapter. That'll tell you, for example, love suffers long and is kind. It doesn't envy, doesn't boast, doesn't pray to itself, so on and so forth. Those will give you qualities of love. And if you have those qualities in 1 Corinthians 13, you also are not going to murder and commit adultery and steal and lie and covet and because, simply because you want to love each other. If your motive is to love each other, you will walk in righteousness.
Amen? Okay. So, another thing that's important to note. This is the next point here. 1 Corinthians 14 in verse 40. We could pull that up on the screen uh, if possible. That would be great. 1 Corinthians 14 in verse 40. That says, let all things be done decently and in order. Everything. Now, this is interesting because typically when you think of the law of Moses, you think of order. You think of everything's cut really clean. Everything is structured. Don't step out of bounds. Don't cross the line. That's what we think of when we think of the law of Moses, but particularly any law. And it's just simply observable in scripture and also in the society in which we live that in order to preserve order, there has to be some kind of law. When there's boundaries that keeps people in order, it keeps things orderly. But even under the new covenant, under the what's called the law of Christ, we're still told everything must be done orderly. So God has never stopped being orderly. So just because you go from the law of Moses to grace does not mean you can do whatever you want, live whimsically, whimsically and randomly, do whatever you please or whatever you feel, thinking there's no consequences. Because that's called disorderliness. And that's what 2 Thessalonians 3 says. We don't actually go from being under, law, under the law of Moses to being free from everything and having no law at all. We're actually told you go from the law of Moses to the law of Christ. The difference is that under the law of Moses, like we started with, the way that you were justified was by doing what the law said and everything that it said. In the law of Christ, having been justified by faith, you have the power to fulfill the law of Christ, which means having been justified, you have been given the ability to love others. And you don't do it because you have to to get righteous. You do it because you are already. The difference is you go from, I have to do this to get this, to I already have it, therefore I do it. Make sense? That's the difference. So we're actually still under what's called the law of Christ, and that's equivalent with grace. And because we're under the law of Christ, there's still order, which means there's still a way of life that we're to abide by. And that way of life has rules, not rules like the law of Moses, but simply the boundaries of love, which means, hey, if you love people, you're going to do this and you're not going to do that. And it'll be natural. Make sense? So what this means, and this is where it gets confusing, is that we think that there are just simply no consequences for what we do. And of course, there's natural consequences for choices that we make. But we're also, the Bible says, told that we have to give account for the life that we lived. And it says that we'll be judged by the perfect law of liberty. So there is a sense in which order is needed and it's part of life in Christ. So if I'm just to wrap this up before we open it up for questions, that according to 1 John, if you just read all of 1 John, that'd be a really good thing to do. But we're told that this is love, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. I actually, I want to turn to that verse. It's in 1 John 5, just so that you guys can see it in your own Bible. So go to 1 John chapter 5. First John 5 and verse 3 
says, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. I think this is actually a direct reference to something you read about in Acts chapter 15, where there's this dispute. The church is just getting off the ground, and there's a bunch of Pharisees that are getting saved, and Jews, and these Pharisees start telling the Gentiles that they got to be circumcised in order to be saved. And the apostles never taught that. So it creates this dispute. The apostles get together with all the elders at Jerusalem. They have this big meeting. And in this meeting, what they conclude it with is that Peter stands up and speaks. And he says, brethren, please don't put a burden on people, which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear. He calls the law a burden. That's in Acts chapter 15. In the new, new covenant, under grace and under the law of Christ, we are told the way that we love God is by keeping his commandments. But the difference is that those commandments are no longer burdensome. So it's, you're, you're under no burden. That's why Jesus said his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So if you believe that you are under grace, you will keep Christ's commandments to love each other, but it will not be a burden, not a day of your life. What was a burden was when you had to dress this way, not that way, eat this and not that, make this burnt offering and that burnt offering. That was what was burdensome. And that was what was impossible for us to keep. In Christ, order is preserved, but without the burden. Amen? Okay, so, let's get into some questions now. So does anybody have any questions about any of this? Yes. It just starts speaking into it, yeah. Hello? Okay. There you go. So my question would be, because I used to attend the Catholic Church, and I don't know if it's just kind of speaking out loud or just wanting your take on it, but their belief in fasting and Lent and not so much choice of eating, well, I guess on Good Friday, but just Lent. And does that mean that they're kind of stuck in the... Old Testament? I mean, when they are following that, or is that not correct? Okay, so Lent, specifically, you know, is not something you'll find in the Law of Moses, right? However, we are told that being occupied with do not touch, do not taste, do not handle foods and drinks, being occupied with that doesn't profit you. The only time it does, according to to Christ is when you fast for the right reasons. Fasting is still in the will of God for us. We're still told that it's a good thing to fast, but it is not a obligation to do so on a certain day, certain time, certain year in order to, you know, be a good Christian, if that makes sense. So short answer, yes, to observe days, months, and years for eating and not eating and being occupied with that doesn't profit you. So it's not part of the law of Moses, but it is part of what's called the regulations, traditions, and doctrines of men. That's not part of the new covenant. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. More questions? Wow. It's <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wanted to keep it shorter. Normally it takes like an hour to get through everything, but 
wanted to keep it shorter. Well, that's good. Okay. So, does everyone, just to make sure that this is clear, does everyone feel like you have a good handle then on the difference between being under Moses' law versus Christ's law? Does anyone feel like being under Christ and that being called a law, does that like irk you in any way? Just a little bit? Yeah. Okay. So I'll address that real quick just to make sure that that is understood. So the reason why the term law can be uncomfortable for many of us is because we associate that with the burden of the Old Testament law. And that Old Testament law was meant to be burdensome. The whole point was actually that you would not be able to do it so that you would realize you're a guilty sinner that is in need of a savior. The Old Testament law was made to make you guilty. But law itself inherently is not wrong. Law means the preservation of order, which is a good thing. Order is good. Right, right, exactly. When you don't have order, you have chaos, you have anarchy, you have no, there's no, there's no boundaries for anything, right? <laughs> right, exactly. So we need to have order. The law of Christ simply means, here, let's, I'll read you a verse that I think really sums it up really well. So go to Ezekiel. <laughs> Didn't expect to find this in Ezekiel. Were you just talking about it? Oh, cool. In uh, 36? Ezekiel 36, is that where you guys were? No? Okay. Okay, so Ezekiel chapter 36. This is, to me, like, I would, probably my favorite presentation in the Bible, and I love the fact that it's in the Old Testament, of the difference between the Old and New Covenant. Okay. Let's start in... Verse 23, I will sanctify my great name, this is God speaking, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God. He's speaking to the Jews. He says, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. This is about being born again. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27. This is my favorite part. I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Under the old covenant, we are simply told, you can't do it. In the new covenant, it never gets rid of law. It simply says, the point of the law is maintained, and the Holy Spirit causes you to walk in it. So it's really not you, it's him in you. Right. Right. Yeah, don't worry. But the point is, like, God never got rid of obedience, guys. Okay? 
The point is that you are empowered to obey by his spirit within you. And that's why it's not burdensome anymore. Because you're not trying to do something by yourself in order to obtain the spirit. It's given to you as a free gift and therefore you have the power to walk in it. And so Ezekiel is very clear about this because it simply states God never got rid of his commandments. He simply said the difference is that it went from you having to do it by yourself to now he's going to cause you to do it. That's the difference. His commandments are still maintained. Obedience is still maintained. And the Bible actually says that if you, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says that if you reject the call to holiness, you reject God. It's pretty cut and dry. There's a few other places that talk about it. Like, for example, Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15 says that Christ came to redeem us from every lawless deed. Every deed done without law, you're to be redeemed from. Therefore, the deeds that you do do should be lawful. Right? If you're redeemed from every lawless deed, then the deeds that are maintained are the lawful ones. And it says it's to make you zealous for good works. And that comes because of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at one more verse that I think will be uh, another really encouraging one. So go to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 in verse 2 is where we'll start. This is a really good one to have in your arsenal. I'd really encourage you guys to memorize this one, get it in your heart. It's really powerful. Romans 8 verse 2 through verse 4. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Wait, pause. There's something called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. There's a law. Right? Perfect law of liberty. Law of Christ. Law of the spirit of life in Christ. He says, has made me free from the law of sin and death. So you actually need the law that's now given to you to be free from the first one. If you're lawless, you're not redeemed. Right? Verse 3. For what the law, law of Moses, could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh. What was it trying to do? That's the question. What was the law of Moses trying to do? Make you conform. Yeah. Remember Galatians 3 said, you're cursed if you do not continue in all of these things. So it was trying to emphasize and really force you to what? Redeem yourself. Yep, do your best. Make it on your own. And it says it couldn't do it. It could not, it could not make you conform. It could not make you righteous. It was absolutely impossible. It made you rebel. Right. Made you rebel. <laughs> right. Exactly. So then it says what the law couldn't do because it was weak through the flesh. Your flesh is weak. Still is. And that's why you can't keep the law of Moses. The flesh is too weak to do it. So then it says God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. So the point of the law was to make a person righteous, but the law of Moses could never do that. But God did it. In other words, he earned righteousness for you by coming in your likeness. So we know the Bible says that you're made in God's likeness, but Christ came in yours. He came looking and being and living as a man, a human being, just like you and I. And on account of sin, it says, which means because of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. This is the conclusion right here. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled 
in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Really, really powerful because he's saying, get this. This is so cool. Jesus was the only man who could fulfill the law by himself. He obeyed it and he earned that righteousness. So he takes that package, which includes the Holy Spirit and the righteousness of God, gives it to you so that through the Holy Spirit, you actually fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, which really is what? Love. All the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole thing. You couldn't do it before Christ. Now that Christ did it, you can. Amen. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to say, like, I feel like... Microphone. Thank you. The button's at the bottom. There you go. Um, I just wanted to say, I feel like the law, the law did not help us get righteous with God because it focused more on the negative than actually... The main focus that I mean, it focused more on the negative, like everything you had to do with the regular, I mean, with the law was focusing on you're not doing this. So you're focusing on not doing the negative. So your focus is really on the negative when that when you just go day by day, just like the new covenant says love. If you just go day by day, just loving, it comes natural. So it's like it's easier for you to obtain whatever it is that you need. Yeah, there, yeah, it does take the pressure off. One thing I will add that's important is, yes, 2 Corinthians 3 says the law written on tablets of stone was a ministry of death. It did, under the old covenant, minister death to people because, just like Jure said, it magnifies how sinful we were or how sinful we are apart from Christ. But that doesn't make the law bad. The law is still good. In fact, Romans 7 says, Sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. And if you keep reading this, again, as in Romans 7, he states several times, the law is good. In fact, it's so good that it makes sin appear really bad. <laughs> And that was the whole point of it. The law is still good. We, Romans uh, 3.31 says, do we then abolish the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we, what? Establish. Establish the law. To establish the law means to maintain, number one, that it's good. Number two, that we actually still walk in it at least the heart of it, what it really meant, which was love. So the only part of the law that you are not under that Christ did away with was burnt offerings and sacrifices, ritual and ceremonial observances, feast days and holidays and festivals. But the love of the law, your life is to establish and fulfill. And that's what the law of Christ is about. And that's what's orderly. And that's how we're called to live and it's how we can live and how we have the power to live in Christ. And anybody who rejects that, the Bible says rejects God. Amen. Okay. Any more questions or comments?
<laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, we don't have Karen here to say uh, in her Australian accent. You had to preach it. <laughs> okay. Um, well, since we have a little bit more time, if you guys want to ask about really anything else, we can do that, even if it's not on the same topic. Mike? In one of the scriptures you read earlier, it says, to those who are being sanctified. That tells me that salvation is a journey. Can you speak about that? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so that's in Hebrews 10. So it says, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. The part of you that's been perfected, we went over this last week, is what? Spirit, yes. Your spirit's perfected. Your body and your mind are not. <laughs> that's obvious. So the part of you that's being sanctified, this is actually what 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about, which I alluded to just uh, earlier ago. It says that sanctification is the will of God for you. You're called to it. So the part of you that's being sanctified really is your mind. Sanctification, who can tell me what the, the meaning of sanctification is? Set apart. Yep, set apart. Renewing your mind, which is why we read the word. Why we, the reason why we observe the law of Christ, the reason why we believe and obey the Bible, the reason why we study it is because it renews, renovates is what the Greek word means, changes your mind. The point of that is so that you walk in alignment with the spirit more effectively every day. And so, yes, that makes sanctification a process and it is a lifelong process. However, I don't want to, I don't want us to miss the fact that sanctification is never stated in the Bible as something that is a hard, difficult burden like the law of Moses was. Sanctification is supposed to be natural because of the Holy Spirit living in you. And the Bible says, as long as you stay renewing your mind, as long as you stay in the word, then you're going to increasingly be more and more sanctified. If you have no relationship with God, if you're not in the word, you're not studying scripture, you're not in good fellowship with other people doing the same, then you're cutting yourself off from the very thing that empowers that sanctification. You have to be walking in the spirit in order to Stay there. So, yes, sanctification is, is a process, but this doesn't mean 50 years down the road. You can say that, you know, you were struggling with the same thing you were 50 years ago and still say God's doing a work in me when you had no active relationship with God. You know, like that would be a bad way of defining sanctification. But, yes, it is a process. Does that answer the question? Uh, did you have something to say? Right. Question. Right. Okay. So is the question is salvation a process? So yes, we know sanctification is salvation. So take 
1 Corinthians 1 says that the cross of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then I heard somebody state Philippians 2 that also says in uh, verse 12 to work out your salvation. So we just talked about how your spirit's perfected. Your spirit's saved. Your spirit can't be any more saved than it already is now. The part of you that is being saved is what? Your mind. And the part of you that will be saved at the end is what? Your body. So there's part of you that is saved, part of you that's being saved, and part of you that will be saved. <laughs> and so salvation, it's important to just recognize that the, the part of you being saved, or that is saved, that's most important to remember is your spirit. That's what makes you a child of God. That's what makes you born again. The being saved is about your mind. So as long as you make that distinction, then you'll be, you'll be in a good place. Does that answer that? Yeah. Okay. Um, Ron, did you have a comment or a question? I wanted you to just explain again for the sake of some new people that are here, kind of the vision, what we're doing here, why we're doing it, modern church paradigm, stuff that we're trying to continue to cross off that modern church paradigm list. Sure. Let's give everyone a refresher on that. Sure. Okay. Um, I will do that when we finish up. Before I address that, is there any other additional comments or questions about anything? It can be about a different topic, too. Okay. Good. Okay, so uh, briefly. So it'd be good. I mean, it's good for us to all be reminded of this. I'll start with just simply the fact that, you know, we used to have a sign in the building that said Valiant Church and all that. We got rid of the name. And... The reason why, and this is where it get, this is, gets into the modern church paradigm thing, is that the Bible says that there is one body. There are not multiple bodies as far as being in Christ is concerned. Everyone who is in Christ and who is truly saved is part of one body. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 1 that as soon as you say you are of a certain division, denomination, or person, it says that you're acting carnally, which means you're thinking according to the flesh and not according to the spirit. So as soon as you say we have a name and a denomination and a tradition that is unique from just simply Christ, you're in the flesh. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, like verses 10 and 11, talks about that. And then 1 Corinthians 3, like the first... Ten verses or so talks about that as well in a second place. So we realized we don't want to be carnal. <laughs> we don't want to be in the flesh. And so we just simply realized we need to identify ourselves by what the Bible says we're to be identified by, which is Christ and him crucified. And just keep it simple. So that means, and this is what we've, we've showed you guys, that if somebody asks you, oh, what church do you go to? Rather than answering that question Pointedly, you just simply state, well, it's not, we don't go to a church. We are part of the body of Christ. We belong to the church of Jesus Christ. And we meet with people in fellowship, study and obey the Bible. That's really the heart of the matter. That's what this is about. That we believe and obey the Bible and we follow Jesus. We were not meant to be named by any other name except the name of Christ. And in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 
verse 5. It says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. You're not supposed to preach any other name but Christ's. As soon as this, this is what we believe, and some would disagree, or maybe I should say I believe. If you agree, then you can shout out. If not, that's fine. Um, <laughs> I believe that having a name and a sign and all that, specifically for a church, contradicts scripture and is preaching us instead of preaching him. That's just the way that I look at it, and I feel like it's just a roadblock. I just think it's in the way. And so that is what we mean by the modern church paradigm of being identified the way that we used to be. Um, I don't have any, I'm not going to criticize anybody who still has a name for their church. Like, I'm not going to get into that argument because it's just not profitable. Unless they're curious about it, then, then I'll unload. But, but <laughs> before that, I'm just not going to get into that. Um, and so then, the, but the heart of the matter, just putting that aside, is simply that we obey the model of the New Testament for how the church is to function. The Bible says that in the book of Acts, the apostles set an example, and Paul especially in several places in the New Testament says that God gave the apostles as a pattern for how we're to believe and follow Christ and to keep the traditions just as we received them from them. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 2 says we're supposed to keep what was given to us by the apostles in the same state in which they were given to us. So the only way to observe that is to do what they did and not add or take away. And so that's what we mean in saying getting rid of modern church paradigm, getting rid of all the things that are not in what the apostles modeled for us. That's what it means to live like an Acts lifestyle. It just simply means being biblical, personally. But that's what this is about. So yeah, what was your comment or question? Yeah. I really love that. It's just logistically sometimes it's hard to, like, I, like okay, Wednesday night is that women's, that's my women's group. Monday, you know what I mean? Just to, even as I take notes, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's just more of a logistics thing. Like, how do you talk? You almost have to talk about it in sentences instead of just identify it with a couple words, you know? I think that's the, because it's not sure. my heart that I, I, I see it as you're talking about it. Mm -hmm. And by saying the word doesn't change how I feel about it, but it's sure. just easier to identify things. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or when you're talking to people about things, sometimes it sounds a little like yeah. odd. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. It does sound odd to a lot of people. Put it this way. If you're talking to somebody who understands your heart and they believe the same way, you can keep it simple and just say, hey, I, you know, I go here, I gather with this group of people. That's fine. But somebody who doesn't understand, and that's going to be like for me, if I'm talking to, you know, you know, close friend or friend or, uh, you know, talking to my wife, for example, I don't have to go through that whole spiel of explaining it all because she, she gets it, right? But if I'm talking to somebody who's a neighbor of mine and I'm just getting to know them and they ask me, where do I go to church? I don't want to just say, oh, I go here because then it just perpetuates the, what they have in their mind about what church is, you know? So I would rather explain it to them for their sake, right? So that's, you know, a better way of looking at it. You know, you don't have to be you know, all anxious about making sure you get all the words right. If you're talking to somebody who knows you and who knows your heart. Um, it is a great conversation starter. Yeah. What, what did you just say right there? How do I explain to the neighbor? I mean, I, well, I mean, I just, just did this last week. Um, went on a walk with a neighbor because a couple weeks before that, I went on a walk with uh, 
my daughter Ada pushing her in the stroller, and I noticed this woman in her backyard and um, approached her to say hi, asked to pray for her. She let me pray for her, gave her some information about Jesus, just introduced Christ to her. And then it was kind of funny, this guy, random stranger, walked up behind me and said, I testify that what this man is saying is true. <laughs> just really, literally what he said, word for word. It's really funny. Yeah. So then I talked to him for a little bit. So then walked off and, and I said, hey, I'll come back and I'll, I'll bring you some apple crisp. So we made her an apple crisp, brought it to her, and then asked her if she'd go on a walk with us. So then Ellie and I went on a walk with her around this pond that's in our neighborhood. And the first question she asks me is, what makes you do what you're doing? Why? Why did you ask to pray for me? Why this? Why that? And I said, well, and then she said, are you a minister or something? Are you a preacher? And I said, well, technically, how you look at it, yes. But I said, even if I wasn't and I was just a Walmart employee, I would do the same thing because it's who I am. You know, I'm, it's not a profession. It's a lifestyle, right? So I explained that to her. That was the first thing. So then she asked, oh, what, what do you guys do? Do you go to a church? What does that mean? I just said, well, I gather with friends and family that also believe the same thing. And we meet in each other's homes and have a larger gathering on Sundays. But I don't call it something I go to. I just call it something that we are. And that's it. What we do, who we are. Right. And she totally got that. She's like, oh, okay. That makes sense. You know? And if somebody asks for a name, and I've never met somebody who's like this, but if somebody's really aggressive and they really want you to tell them what the name is, which is very rare, but if that happens to be the case, <laughs> yeah, the household of God, the body of Christ, the family of God, the, uh, you know, just keep it simple. The looks yeah. that I have gotten. <laughs> and this has come up like, I bet, four times recently, and it's always, what church is it? Where is it? What's it called? <laughs> put it this way, put it this way. Here's how, they, here's how they said it in scripture. They would say, the church that is in the house of Nymphus. <laughs> so when, I, when people ask me, so what do you do for church? I say, I go to Marcy's house. I go, to, I go to home church. I go to Marcy's house. I go to Marcy's house and we have church on, on Thursdays. Yeah. And then on Sundays, uh, the rest of our home churches gather uh, at, at that building over there. Yeah. And there also go. I was looking on, so I started doing research because I'm like, okay, I haven't been to church in a while or to the gathering on Sundays. So I started looking up Valiant, and I noticed that, that it's not Valiant anymore. This has been a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. I'm like, so when, what time does it officially start? How do I know when it officially starts? Because we don't necessarily now have, like, okay, this is Valiant Church, and we open, we start every day at this time. So that's no longer information that's available from my research. And I just noticed it's all David Grams, David Grams everywhere, David Grams, David Grams. And then I thought, that makes perfect sense that we don't have a title under a church but the prophet who is presenting under God the word, just like in the Bible, how the prophets came to Galatia or whoever the town was. They came through the town and they presented the word as the prophet of God or the apostle of God presenting it. It makes sense that way that we're, we're, we're under the teaching of Jesus through our through David. Well, I mean, you're under the teaching sense. of Jesus, period. Yeah, under Jesus, but, but you're the prophet that has been called to give us the information or whatever sure however we want to look at it in that way oh I'll, I'll present just a basic scripture about what she's saying so in first corinthians 3 paul says don't say i am of paul right what he says is 
who I am is a minister through whom you believed. In other words, naming an individual is okay if you're limiting it to this happens to be the person that led me to Jesus, happens to be the person that baptized me, but I belong to Christ, period. And you can identify a name to say, hey, this, you know, this person gives a lot of teaching or this person gives a lot of prophecies or whatever. That's fine. But who you belong to is Christ, period. You don't belong to the name of a denomination or tradition or the name of a man either. That's not what you belong to. And so that's, biblically, that's where we get what she was just talking about. But getting back to the whole thing, the house of nymphs, what she just described is really what you say. If so there's a few examples of it, but the New Testament talks about, um, you know, the greet Aquila and Priscilla and the church that is in their house, or greet Nymphus and the church that is in his house, and Revelation, the church that is at Laodicea, you know, or Philippi. Like, all you're doing is saying the gathering of people that meets in this person's house, or the gathering of people that meets in this building, or the gathering of people that meets in this city. You don't name the group of people because they are just the church. What you name is the place where they meet. So people can lo- locate them if they want to join. And that's about it. So that, that's simple terms. That is what it should be. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I apologize for any way in which this seems complicated. We try to keep it simple. But okay. Any more questions or comments about anything? No. <laughs> there we go. No, I, I find that interesting because it's almost like our culture has created mindsets towards specific words so like if you mention church to somebody they instinctively have in their mind a building you know it's not the ecclesia it's a building so like i was even having a discussion with some friends yesterday and talking about the different letters that paul sent out to the churches and they're like yeah they sent out to the churches no 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 the people so they sent it out to the leader and then he distributed to the people and they're like oh it wasn't a building no it wasn't a bill you know what i mean but I mean, it's like getting that dynamic through our minds that church doesn't mean a specific building or a denomination. It's the body. It's the people. And it's similar to what we view the word Christian. Because if you just walk up to anybody, if you're going to go evangelizing, you're like, hey, are you a Christian? They're going to be like, oh, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. You know, OK, well, how does your life look? You know, like you got you have to ask that deeper question, because I know people that we've tried to disciple in the past they all claim to be Christians, right? And so we're just like, okay, well, let's start a, a group. But then through time, there's no fruit in anybody's life because they're calling themselves Christian, but it's not a title, it's a lifestyle, like you were saying. So, yeah. And that's one of the most important things of having this discussion with people because people have, just like you said, this notion of what something is when it's not really what it is. Yeah. Uh, they made it Right, yeah, yeah, Christianity, in fact, the term Christian and Christianity was not something instituted by Jesus. Um, that came from Antioch. It was, it was actually the, the Gentile, non-believing uh, city of Antioch that started calling followers of Jesus Christians. Then that's where we got the term Christianity, and then it was institutionalized, just like he's saying, and that has created the presupposition that people have in their minds whenever you ask them about what Christian means to them, you know? So it's better to explain why that's wrong to a person so that they understand you and what you believe and how you live. And don't go try to, to, 
you know, have somebody join a group and join a church and join this or that when just because they say they're Christian, because <laughs> you don't you don't really know the fruit in their life, just like Brant was saying, you don't really know whether they're really a follower of Jesus or not. So it's really, really important to make sure we understand that. Yeah. Good comments. Oh, back here. Okay, yeah, yeah, methodically. Okay, so the comment she just made was that, you know, the point is not inviting somebody to a gathering. If you look at how evangelism was done in the book of Acts, again, what was modeled by the apostles? They went out and discipled people, and when they were baptized in the Christ, then they added them to the church. So the way that evangelism functioned was there was no invite to a building. In fact, the Bible says, if there happens to be an unbeliever or uninformed person who walks in. Yes, make sure you respect that. But we're never told in the New Testament that you're supposed to invite people to church. We're simply told, you go out and make disciples. The people inside the church do the work. You go out and you make disciples. It's one-on-one stuff, guys. Like, you find a person, you lead them to Jesus, you baptize them, you pray for them for healing, whatever it is. You lead them to Jesus, and then if they're baptized into Christ, you say, hey, like, join the fellowship. You're part of the family now. And that's when they're added to the church. That's how things are supposed to be done. So as soon as you invite somebody to church, then you place the burden of their conversion, which is really not even on man's ability anyway, on the preacher. And you make it about, I got to bring them to a place where they'll get content that I don't know how to deliver to them. And that it perpetuates this inactivity and inability that all believers are supposed to have. And so if you look at the book of Acts in chapter 8, it simply says, in, in, excuse me, chapter 9, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen spread as far, and it names all the cities, and says, and they went preaching the gospel everywhere. The believers. There was no, like, just the evangelist does that, or just the apostle does that, or just the pastor. All of them were doing it. All of them. That's what we see in the book of Acts. That's what was modeled by the apostles, and that's how we're to live our lives. So then practically for here, we are not against you bringing somebody to church just because we happen to not know them. If you, you know, you're a committed follower of Jesus, you know somebody who's a committed follower of Jesus, they're already part of the family, that's fine, bring them. No problem, we're not against any of that. It only becomes an issue when you start inviting people who don't know Jesus to try to get them to experience Jesus. Because you are supposed to be that experience for them. You as an individual, right? So that's the distinction. You can, you, if it's already, they're already believers, they're already following Christ, bring them in. That's awesome. That's great. But they don't know Jesus. Don't think the next step you're supposed to take is to invite them to church because that's not what the Bible says to do. Make sense? Okay. Amen. All right. Well, we will, uh, we'll wrap up here. You guys can stick around and, um, be in fellowship some more, get to know some people, shake some hands, hang out. Uh, we'll do the offering as well. So if you guys would like to give this morning and you want to do cash or check, you can uh, put your hand up. We'll get you an envelope. Do we have? I don't know if we have envelopes. Back there we do? Okay. Um, moving forward, because Valiant Church doesn't exist anymore, <laughs> the checks are made out to Valiant Ministries International. That's the organization that allows us to have the 501c3 status and that's what gives you the uh, tax break, which is not supposed to be your motive for giving anyway. But in case that's of interest to you, <laughs> that's the name you give it to. Uh, Valiant Church is uh, not valid anymore. 
So if you're right now, check, make sure it's to that name. Um, otherwise, you can use the link that's on the screen if you want to do it uh, electronically on your phone uh, with a debit credit card or PayPal. So thank you guys for your generosity. I'm just going to pray us out here, and then you guys can, can move forward. So, Father, I thank you for your faithfulness, the truth and wisdom of your word. Just pray that in everything, you, your kingdom, and the Son of God would all be edified and built up in this world, in this nation. Uh, I just right now want to pray for just the United States of America and that we would not think that it's our job to be patriots of a flag or of a human nation or government, but rather patriots of the gospel, ambassadors of the kingdom of God, and that we would preach the gospel and we would not preach ourselves or the name of any denomination, tradition, or man, but that we would preach the name of Jesus. Help us to have the understanding that we need to be able to do that effectively, Lord. And I thank you for just giving us boldness to preach your word and the willingness to do so and the know-how, the skill set to be able to deliver your word to people. Um, and I thank you for the seed that was sown in everyone's hearts this morning, that it would bear fruit, that it would grow, that they would study it, meditate on it, and bring fruit to maturity with patience, Lord God. All these things in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys, you are dismissed. See you next week.